Several years ago, my son Luke served as a hospital chaplain at Westchester Medical Center about 30 miles north of here in Valhalla. The center is an advanced medical care and referral hospital serving about almost 4 million people covering Westchester County and the Hudson Valley and Fairfield County, Connecticut and part of metropolitan New York. And it is the major trauma center for that area with helicopters regularly ferrying desperate victims in severe medical crisis. That can be a pretty intense environment for a chaplain. Those of you that know the classic sitcom MASH, you all know that, right? Remember Alan Alda? It was on television for over 10 years. MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. It took place on the battlefield in the Korean War. You'll recall that a chaplain was part of the team. A major trauma center like Westchester duplicates that kind of dramatic life and death scenario. Well, recently Luke was remembering this environment of running between neonatal intensive care and the emergency room crises when he interrupted himself and asked what I thought about intercessory prayer. In particular, those desperate prayers people ask for that are logically and obviously impossible, wanting some seeming magical intervention. And the chaplain's obligation or responsibility is exactly what? What do you think, Dad? But without taking a breath, he, he then recounted how he had been in neonatal intensive care one day and got a page from the emergency room. They needed a chaplain quick. Racing down, he entered a room filled with wailing, nearly uncontrollable family and friends of a man lying on a stretcher bed whose body and face were covered with stained linens. He had been in a severe motorcycle accident, and Luke was informed the man's face had been nearly destroyed, and he suffered massive inoperable brain trauma. Stepping into this situation, Luke offered that he was a chaplain. Well, the family wanted prayer. He quickly surmised that they were Afro-Caribbean Pentecostal Christians who were accustomed to very aggressive and ecstatic praying. Something had to be done to save the victim. Now, those of you that know my son will recognize that this kind of prayer vocabulary was outside his experience. And that fact became evident to the family who determined they needed a better prayer. And so got on the hospital telephone in the room and called a distant relative. The phone was then lifted and the speaker of the phone was held above the victim as ecstatic prayer was offered on this victim's behalf from somewhere at the other end of the telephone connection. And Luke said it went on for 10 or 15 minutes. 
Luke also understood that what the hospital needed and what was in this man's best interest was a DNR, a do not resuscitate directive, and the family's permission to remove intravenous life support that had been deployed en route to the hospital. Eventually, the presiding matriarch in the room stopped the praying, came to an end. And as it came to an end, another man approached Luke and asked his reason for being there. And Luke replied that he was prepared to provide whatever support they might need. The man then said that the victim was actually not Christian, despite all the invoking of Jesus' name, but Rastafarian. Did Luke know anything about Rasta? Admitting ignorance, Luke said he would try to discover if there was some sort of a Rasta ritual that might be useful. Still, what needed to happen, he quietly said, for this poor man's sake and the sake of the family was removal from life support to prevent a lingering, suffering death. He left the room to do a little research, and by the time he returned, the room had emptied. Someone in the family had finally provided the hospital with the permissions they needed. And by the way, Luke found no useful Rasta ritual under the circumstance. Do I believe in intercessory prayer? Well, yes, I do, if by believing is meant that I do it. Even, I would say, the disembodied prayer coming out of the phone from some distant believer has authenticity. The heart of that person was likely right for sure. She wanted what she thought was best for the victim. It's just that she didn't have all of the facts. But honestly, you know, I would tell you that captures my own personal experience over the years. That is throwing passionate prayers at God that are somehow off point since I'm not entirely aware of all the facts, including the facts of my own deepest need. Of course, come to think of it, much of the time I'm off point expressing myself to my wife Melissa. It's only in the ongoing engagement that clarity begins to emerge over time if I'm willing to be quiet every now and then and listen to her, if I'm willing to learn a thing or two and not simply ask or demand a thing or two. I have to trust she has my best interests at heart. She has good things, useful things, important things for me. I need to trust that. Eventually, in that emergency room, a prayer was expressed in some form that this family would find courage to accept what needed to be done out of love for the victim. And it was accomplished. That prayer was likely never said out loud, but I can feel its presence in recounting this story to you because I felt it within Luke for certain. God was in the mix there, just like God is in the mix here among us. 
a larger wisdom prevailed. And if we're wise, we'll ask that a larger wisdom prevails in here as well, in the midst of all of our prayers. I note that at the end of Jesus' little parable about persisting in prayer, his point seems focused on the matter of faith. That's how he ends. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? From this perspective, the woman's persistence is evidence of faith. She will be heard. She will have her justice. And by the way, it's not a small matter that justice is what she's demanding, since the widow in her culture would have been among the most vulnerable in society. Widow was a code word for the most vulnerable and defenseless. She had no position. She had no leverage. She had no clout with this corrupt judge. She had nothing, nothing but her dogged persistence to gain her justice. Even atheists are known to offer up a prayer in a desperate moment of spontaneous forgetfulness. Afterwards, they might chide themselves for their knee-jerk childishness for throwing themselves on God's mercy. But as Harry Emerson Fosdick once put it, the instinct for a relationship with a divine ally, with someone who cares about our race and its conflicts and defeats, persists. If God is, if God is, and if we know God relationally, the way in which we propose in here, it stands to reason that prayer would become as natural as the air inflating our lungs. To complain we don't know how to do it, how to communicate with God, is just a bit like saying we don't know how to communicate with our spouse or partner or children or friend or co-worker, which, of course, generally has at least a germ of truth and often is the truth. We often don't know how to communicate with any of them. But even in those relationships, we also know that if we persist in trust and faith, we stand a very good chance of deepening the relationship and discovering ever greater means for expressing the yearnings of our heart, for expressing our truth, it is only in persistent trying that a relationship advances. Isn't that right? Patience is the companion of wisdom, St. Augustine wrote. Whoever knocks persistently ends by entering. By the way, as you know, I like to throw out little one-liners for you to write on a post-it note and stick it somewhere useful. This is a good one. This is a good one. Whoever knocks persistently ends by entering. Jesus told a parable about the need to pray always and not to lose heart. We have prayer cards here at Christ Church out in the entryway there. They're meant to be deposited in a small box. 
in our entryway. Recently, walking out of the church, a rather desperate and harried-looking man asked me where the prayer box was. Where should he put his card? I saw that the box was missing, so I told him to give it to me. Later, I learned that the box had been broken. Occasionally, this happens on the mistaken assumption that it's a donation box. Sometimes people put money in there. By the way, not so long ago, someone put in $5,000 in $50 bills. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> Who says there is no God? Okay. I held on to this man's card. It had a single name on it, Marilyn. I didn't mind holding her before God. I assumed God already held her close, but, but likely my willingness to participate in her care shared in God's gracious intention for her. That's what I believe. And I prayed for the man who held her in heart and mind. He looked as though he could use some care himself. You know, I was coming home on, the, on a plane from Dallas this past week, and I was, ended up sitting next to a young woman who I learned was, uh, eventually learned she was 22. The plane was weather-delayed, and then it was, and then we got out onto the tarmac and stopped and had to go back in because even though this was brand new equipment, there was some little malfunction they had to check out. So we drove back into the gate. And all this time she was managing her phone and um, eventually we were back out on the tarmac again and we had to put electronics away, and she was hanging up her phone. She was crying. She burst into tears. That is always the case for a minister. <laughs> Someone <laughs> is always going to be sitting next to you. And I knew that this was inevitable. We would end up discovering what this was about. And eventually we did. She couldn't help herself, but tell me that her fiancé in the army was being deployed and she was afraid her flight delay might cause her to miss him. And she was full of that, if you will. It was very obvious to me that this young woman did not have a religious point of view or perspective. I learned that she, oddly enough, works 10 blocks down Park Avenue. I asked her what her name was. She said, Rachel. I asked her what her fiancé's name was. She said, Nick. I said, at the end of the flight, I said, Rachel, if it's all right with you, I'd like to pray for you and Nick. Would that be all right? 
and she bursts into tears again. Because clearly she needed to know there was a divine ally on her side who cared tenderly for her and for Nick. And now that I've shared their names with you, you too might offer your own prayer for Rachel and Nick. We've had prayer cards out here ever since we put glass doors on the front of this building. That's probably since 99, I think. For 13 years running, every single week, there was a card in the box for a trio of persons named Priscilla, Kyle, and Rainey. Every single week for 13 years. Those of us who became aware of this were a bit bemused initially, but not so very much time passes when a different attitude sets in. An attitude forged by patient persistence of the earnest sentiment of the one who loves Priscilla, Kyle, and Rainey and holds them before God. You want that person on your side, don't you? Some cards are written by those who have, no, who, who have obvious psychological problems. Some are written by the homeless. In other words, prayers written by those who have, like the woman in the parable, no power, no position, no clout in our society, and often no justice. They persist in their relationship with God. You know, one cannot pray with them and not be changed. If you're praying for justice for someone, you cannot be changed. Some cards are written in languages you can't read, some in the characters of Korean and Chinese, some in Cyrillic, some in Arabic, others not identifiable. Honestly, friends, it does not matter. In this small gesture of hospitality that we offer, we've accumulated the universal human longing for connection with that divine ally who loves us. Packaged in highly individualized containers named like Priscilla, Kyle, and Rainey. Each container, important, cherished beyond measure. That's awesome, is it not? <laughs>